Hello and welcome to Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar. My name is Cooper Knowlton. And I'm Lee Bergstein. And today we are going to be talking with Judge Kenneth Holder from Queens County. Do you prefer Judge Holder? Is that Judge Ken? What do you prefer? I mean, I just prefer Ken, but, <laughs> you know, if, 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 if it's has to be, okay. you know, for purposes of what you're doing, sure. it might as well just be Judge. Yeah, I wouldn't feel comfortable calling you Ken. Must be a very weird thing. Like, do your friends ever call you Judge? Yeah, and I tell them not to. <laughs> right. I, you know, that's, that's, so that was, that was a disturbing thing to get used to, you know. It's like, <laughs> you know, sure. It's like one of those things politicians always have to get used to, I'm sure. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, one day they're, you know, it's, you're Ken, the next day you're, you're Judge. And I, so I'm not even turning around, you're like, what? Who are you talking about? You know, right. so you, you got to catch that. Well, it's like when clients call me on the phone and say Mr. Bergstein, and I right. say, please do not call me Mr. Bergstein. Right. It's my right. last thing that I want to be called. I, I mean, because my, my I'm Cooper Knowlton, but I think Cooper is a common uh, last name. So I get people all the time being like, Mr. Cooper, Mr. Cooper. Mr. Cooper. Right. They don't go I'm, to the Knowlton. it's like the weird thing where I'm yeah. like trying to correct them and I still get it. Maybe you should flip your last name. <laughs> he has so many names. I can't keep track. This guy has like Cooper's five. Cooper's actually, it's, Cooper's my five, middle name. Five so it's like I get William. I get, it's just the whole <clears> thing's just a mess. I don't know what my parents were thinking, but. Where were you from again? Where was I from? Yeah. Like where, my family. Where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey. Okay. What exit? From, what exit? Uh, 145. Oh, no, 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 160. I can't, honestly, I've been, it's been so long. You so were, Montclair, you, Montclair, you're not New from Jersey, New Jersey, Montclair. are you? Okay. This is, it's, I think it's 160. Yeah, we're what talking f- about the turnpike. No, 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 it's definitely not. <laughs> uh, the turnpike, I don't even know. But Garden State is like 157, 155. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why, why 145 immediately came to mind, but it's definitely not 145. I thought you were from Connecticut for some reason. No, New Jersey. That's why you have so many names. People from Connecticut have like five names. No, the worst name of all is the, the names of my parents gave my brother and I, you know, uh, middle names. What's your middle name? Chadwick. Chadwick. <laughs> I never knew that. Yeah. No. Actually, I'm it's, a, it's, it's, it's a state secret. Actually, it's, office. A, it's a state secret. Don't, don't, okay. <laughs> my brother's middle name is Delano. Okay. Delano. And that's because that was a, the whole British, sure. you know, uh, uh, influence. So that's, that's actually a good maybe jumping off point. So you grew up in the UK, right? I grew up in the UK until I was about uh, six or seven years old. You know, I was born there, actually. Didn't born pick there. up the accent. Oh, no, I had the accent uh, big time. I, I definitely had the accent. Can you do the accent real fast right well, now? Well, the accent used to come out when I was on trial or when I got upset. But I remember <laughs> when we came over to this country and, and I was in school, I remember the teacher asked me to do something. I said, I can't do it. And uh, at that point, I got a beat down after class, you know, by everyone that says, you can't do it. You know, I mean, what is this? What are you? Who are you? You know, so uh, coming to school, my parents even had me in knickers. So you, you know what was going on. I, I, I had to make a full turn around and the problem with that is that i had just come from jamaica i was living in jamaica for two years after we left london uh, and i had a uh, a very deep jamaican patois accent so the jamaican patois accent mixed with the british accent i was just linguistically just a, a total mess <laughs> what, what did your what did your parents do my mom who uh was jamaican she left jamaica she went to uh london and she studied nursing. My dad left British guy at the time, and he went to Germany, and he studied engineering. And he was working for Volkswagen at the time, and he had designed an item for Volkswagen that assisted in diagnosing what was wrong with a car once you connected it 
you know, uh, two, two wires to the car, and it told you a million things that was wrong with it. So he, he helped design that, and then he became responsible for installing that into all the plants, the Volkswagen plants around the world. So he started traveling around the world doing that. We followed him briefly until we said, listen, we'll just catch up with you. And that's when we just, you know, we, we were in Jamaica, we were in Canada, um, and then we just finally said, we'll just, we ended up in America, and my dad finally caught up with me after. But where how we were born was that my dad must have left Germany at some point, traveled to London, you know, to hang out, basically, and that's where he met my mom. And my mom and, you know, and him got married and so on, and my brother and I were born in, in England. That's how we ended up there. So it was a little roundabout thing. But what happens is that that's because... You know, England's influence around the world was always to colonize most of the West Indian countries. So, sure. so typically, when you thought of the capital, for we think of as you, you know, uh, Washington D.C. over here. For the most part, for islanders, it's London. You know, so that was a ver- easy place that you got a uh, a visa to go to because you know you just get a visa and just go to London. And most people, when they did go into the medical field. What kind of student were you growing up? I would say I was a C plus, B minus student. You know, I was actively doing work and so on, but I had, you know, just interests, you know, pulling me in different directions, whether it was sports, you know, whether it was hobbies. So there's always something else pulling me. But I always did the projects, you know, A A plus for projects and stuff like that. But eventually after I got into, you know, college, then I was a B plus, you know, A minus student. I didn't think college was very difficult. You know, I was majoring business administration and those courses weren't particularly difficult. It was not like it was taking organic chem like you know where the national average is a d so those other folks the chem majors or the people taking you know quantum physics or statistical analysis so i wasn't pushing the envelope real bad and i thought that those are those are good classes at what point during your college career did you say okay i think i'm interested in going to law school that was late in my college career i was doing a lot of photography when i was in college uh i had taught myself and I actually got good enough with it because that's the time we were actually developing pictures, you know, in dark rooms, you know, developing slides and 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 so on. But not I not just a filter on no Instagram and no. Then this was this was this was the real deal, you know, uh, burning pictures in and you know photos in and so on. But I got well enough that I was actually teaching it at the college. We also uh, managed myself and a good friend of mine who, when we were in high school, what we used to do is he was a good interviewer. And my photography was just, skills were just, you know, starting around that time. But what we used to do is we would contact a lot of sports figures and uh, entertainers to come to the school and speak. And when they would come, after they spoke about whatever they had to talk about, we would interview them. And my friend would do the interview, and I would, you know, document it photographically. From that, we ended up meeting Gary Bird. Gary Bird is a local DJ here in New York who has a radio station on WW... Uh, actually, it was used to be WWRL, but it now it's WBLS. He wrote a lot of songs for Stevie Wonder, so he's very musically inclined. And when we met him, we began to meet a lot of other entertainers. So by the time I went to college, uh, I was taking a lot of pictures for a lot of different different individuals and started doing some work for CBS. And so while I was in college, I used to take pictures for CBS and uh, they would have me document their concerts, anyone who was on like Epic Record labels at that time. The company would just say, you know, here, fine, you know, here's some film, you know, and here's tickets for the show, go and just photograph the show. And, you know, the pictures that we I ended up taking ended up in, you know, uh, Ride On magazine and, you know, album liners when, when the actual album is being sold and things like that. Or they just go on file. So when I graduated from college, I took a year off between college and law school. I had done some work down at CBS 
And that's when I realized that the lawyers run this company. So prior to that, when you were in college, it, the law wasn't really on your mind. You it really not, were like, a, did you think you were going to be a photographer or think you were going to be sort of in the entertainment media I thought, space? I thought I was, I thought it was going to be in the entertainment medium, definitely. Mm-hmm. But I certainly know, I knew that I had no problem speaking. I had no problem being in the debate groups, you know, debate clubs and so on at school and, and to put on a couple plays at school as well. So there was a lot of speaking things that I was doing at school. So I was very comfortable with doing that. But I still thought that I'd lean to, you know, the ent- entertainment side. Um, so when I graduated from, 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 from college, I was not sure that, you know, law was not a hundred percent of my mind, but probably in the back of my mind, what cemented it was, uh, to see a company where there was so much talent, you know, I mean, the garbage people there, you know, had talent because they were all there waiting for a break, you know, something to open up and, you know, for them to get that spot on that TV show or whatever. And, but they would, you know, or you'd have the singers, you know, they're cutting the albums or whatever, they would come and go. The only people that stayed were the people that ran the company. I mean, and it was like the lawyers, you know, ran the company. And in my mind, they said, that's when I said, you know. So, like, so, so during school. that year, did you take the LSAT or did you sort of? I, 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 I put everything in place to take the LSAT gotcha. that same year. Exactly. I took that. I took the LSAT that, that year. Uh, I did pretty well on it. But um, um, I'd say, I'd, you know, maybe I, I don't even, you know, I don't remember what the school, the range was because it's now it's different. It's, it's, right. it's different. But I did. I did pretty, pretty well. on it. Not not the, not obviously not the not the not not the very top. But I know I got a call from. Um, uh, I got a letter from University of Toledo that said, you know, would you like to come to our, our, our law school? You know, uh, if you come up here, the tuition is free. You just have to pay for parking. It's amazing. <laughs> that was that. <laughs> so when when you're deciding to go to law school, in the back of your mind, were you thinking, okay, I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to come back and run one of these companies? Was exactly. I, I, I'm still thinking that when I when I get out, I'm going to uh, I'm going to want to get into the entertainment field. You know, uh, 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 be a uh, a not a not a manager of a star, but be you know be uh, an employee in a, an environment such as this corporate law. You know, uh, uh, in the in the in the offices or uh, um, uh, one of the attorneys that 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 basically uh, I, I guess rides ride ship over some of the uh, the entertainers and some of the contracts that they're they're signing or or have to look over things like that so that was that was that was that was that was my plan because it was you know it was a it was a nice looking thing did, to do did that actually happen when you got to law school did you take were you taking classes that were focused on commercial law and entertainment and i mean i did take i did take all those classes and in the back of my mind you know uh i mean they certainly weren't geared necessarily for that and i, I think there might have been one entertainment law class they had it was almost like an elective you know i mean uh, that they took that because i was i mean matter of fact a lot of people took that because it was a fun class you know and 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 the uh, and typically the i think the professor at that time was someone right from that area so he had great great stories he had you know uh so again that that was that was something that continued to peak you know my uh my my interest but uh you know but while i'm in law school i then you participate in the different clinics uh the clinics you know where you're representing people or you're going down to the courthouse uh you're opening up your yourself to a lot of different sides of law that you never really thought about uh before because you had you know you had no reason to you know a lot of it was public interest law you know a lot of it some of the landlord tenant the typical things that you could do uh in law school while you're in a clinic under the assistance or guidance of, you know, uh, a professor. So what was the clinic that kind of 
changed your career path? Well, there was was a, there one? Well, it, it didn't necessarily change it, but it, it was a, along the way. It was a public interest uh, clinic that whereby, you know, there were individuals who were uh, charged with low-level low level offenses within the uh, Toledo uh, community. Uh, and uh, there was a, uh, the, the school itself had had an office set up whereby those individuals actually came in and, and under the, uh, the leadership of uh, a professor, they would... You know, indicate what you know what their cases were about. You know, would see would would get the discovery. You know, from the uh, you know from the prosecutor, and all along the way, we were part part and parcel of the uh, of the interview uh, interview process and the process to go with them to court and 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 uh, and 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 at some level, you know, assist the attorneys, you know, the professors in the in the defense of some of these cases. When when you were at that point in your career, or when you were in law school, did you ever would it have ever crossed your mind that? Twenty years later, you'd be a you'd be a judge. Not at all. It's it's not even. Um, that was not even. <laughs> I couldn't have even, even imagined that uh, at, at at all. I, I actually, sometimes I'm, I still, um, you know, I'll pinch myself about that because that's that that was completely uh, surprised. There definitely are there definitely are the law students who have their eye on <laughs> on the bench from day one. Right. Well, I mean, there's law students that uh, that see themselves, you know, from law school all the way through retirement. You know, I mean, they have their mind set out. But, you know, uh, I, you know I, I will say that as you go along that that path, you know, there are there are things that are going to step in your way that, you know, that might uh, divert you one one way or the other for one reason or the other. And, uh, you know, but it's nice to have it's nice to have direction, you know, because that at least tells you, you know, which 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 way you should be going. Um, but you should still be open to, uh, to to change. And as you grow, you, you, that that's that's sort of sort of what's going to happen. At that clinic that you were talking about, was there one case that you remember that had some an impact in you or an experience with one of one of your clients? Not not particularly, but I but I will say that the cases in general seem to show me that there's certainly a difference in representation. Money talks and money can lead to a big difference in the type of representation because you had uh, individuals that we saw, you know, in court that weren't our cases, but you had individuals that were charged with offenses, you know, whose law firms were able to really run rings around the prosecution because of the level of investigation that they were able to conduct on a case. It far exceeded the uh, the budget, I think, of the local prosecutor's office to go into every case to the extent that they would have liked to. So there were a few cases that the result that was achieved probably was not expected. I mean, in other words, someone was found not guilty that everyone would have believed was certainly guilty. And in those cases, to you, it seemed like it was a resource-driven thing versus a skill set? Yeah, without a doubt. But part and parcel, the resources came with individuals that had a skill set that was beyond the abilities of some of the local prosecutors. That office there in Toledo, they had some good prosecutors, but I think they only had maybe maybe 8 or 9% of them were the, the higher echelon but they can't take all of the cases, so cases have to be divvied out to you know people at the at the mid level. Those are the ones that got challenged because something may end up on their desk that was you know a particularly challenging case or or a case that they did not look at um, um, uh, as deeply as they probably should have you know coming out the box. What was Toledo like? Did you like? Living there, working there, did you think about staying at any point? Well, you know, Toledo was an interesting place because you can't be in a place that long for three years and not form associations. I certainly did that. I think the troubling thing about Toledo was its geography in in terms of its proximity to Detroit, which was just a mess at that time. I mean, Detroit just now just 
you know, filed for bankruptcy not too long ago, and you know what's you saw what's going on with the water up there. It seemed to me as though that started like so long ago, uh, even from the time I was there. And so there was always a lot of transient folks that were coming down from Detroit looking to get out of there and so on. So the city was in a state of flux in terms of any stability. They had a, a population of individuals that they had to try to take care of that were coming in. So it was an uncomfortable setting in terms of you don't know what this place is going to look like 10 years from now. It made you very reluctant to set up any roots there. So you made your friendships, you know, and you move on. You're obviously dealing with the with a lot of like lower level criminals. Did you see kind of some of these socioeconomic conditions that you're talking about? Was that driving a lot of the, the lower level crime there? Oh yeah, oh yeah, without without a doubt, um, a, a lot of the crime there were you know were narcotics, uh, alcoholism, you know, a lot of a lot of the the, the the same the same the same things that you go you that come that are part and parcel of just a um, a poor a poor society, not having access to good health care and so on, wanting to feel good. They're they're in the corner shooting up a needle, you know. Uh, you have uh, um, um, heroin farms, you know, that were that people are going to, you know, uh, the, the needles are, are are killing them because they're all they're all dirty and filthy. You have a uh, healthcare system that that was pushed to the limit in some areas, you know, f- for not being able to take care of them. And you know, these folks don't have doctors, but they'll end up in the in the emergency room. You know, they're getting arrested for low level crimes. You can't keep them all in jail. They come out, they get, it's just a revolving door, you know. I mean, so uh, I don't recall if there was like an 18B um, uh, scenario out there. Uh, that, that's the, uh, the, the, the attorneys that are getting paid, uh, the county, county paid attorneys. I don't recall out there how those attorneys were getting paid. I know they were all went private, but I never r- realized that. But I, but I know that there, in some cases, you know, you had the attorneys that uh, simply they're, they're I, I wouldn't say it's lucrative, but... It was a revolving door. They would get the same clients over and over again and be assigned to the same clients over and over again. So uh, if they were getting paid, when that person got rearrested, they knew who the lawyer was before. So you got that case again. So uh, it's, 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 a, I, and it's not unlike probably what ha- used to happen you know, all around the country at that, at that level. So it's not like it was federal court. From that experience, did, you, did, that, did that speak to you in some way and say, I want to do this for a living or I want to be on the other side and be a prosecutor? Did that experience kind of set <clears throat> path for you moving forward? Well, the, the prosecution, uh, that, that, that started to come about because um, at, at or about the same time, there was a lot of violence, you know, um, um, and uh, because that type of community uh, scenario, that type of uh, um, uh, income disparity, you know, uh, and, and being close to other people that, that are probably, you know, more wealthy is going to lead to the type of crime, type of violent crime uh, where people who don't have want to take from, you know, the people who do have, you know, and uh, having access to, you know, to guns, having access to, uh, you know, and, and then having the bravado to, to, to do it uh, are things that, that, that unfortunately result in uh, uh, increase in crime. So uh, the level I was at, what I was seeing, that was just, you know, what what interests me about that was the, you know, the cases, the individuals were not were not uh, uh, they were not horrible individuals. They were just you know landlord tenant cases. They just paid individuals whose society you know uh, because of their 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 income structure just had you know had had things that weren't going too well for them. That's different from people who were you know the drug dealers who were trying to take advantage of them, the one who were applying the drugs, the one who would bring the guns into the to the area. 
the ones and who didn't really live in there and live in that area and who frankly were doing pretty well you know financially so uh uh you can see that eventually there was a there was a turn about that oh god this is this is kind of bad so um the 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 defense side of it um uh, in in the in the uh in that uh in that uh that that um that little program that I went, was in was fine but the reality of life to me became uh, the uh, the violence and 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 so on, and I think that's what started to drive me towards when I when I get out, you know, when I graduate, I'm probably going to try to become a prosecutor. So so tell us about that process. So you you sort of make that decision at some point during law school. How do you go about applying for jobs? How do you go about deciding that you're going to come back to New York City? Well, I um, um, first. Eventually, I decided I'm not going to stay in Toledo for the reasons I, I previously said before. You and, and you couldn't find a parking spot? Well, I'll <laughs> <laughs> um, tell you one thing. When I left Toledo, I, le- I did leave there in a hurry. I was, I was, I was moving. <laughs> I, I recall very vividly that when I was driving down the highway in my, in my Honda Civic, um, I remember when I saw the cop, and I was on Route 80, I slowed down to 105. I remember that. And I've done, um, I've done that trip. I went to law school in Michigan, and I've done that drive many times. Straight it's maddening. So he pulled me over, and he said, uh, "Sir, may I see your pilot's license?" <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, he said, "Where are you going?" I said, "I'm getting out of your state." He said, "Oh my God!" He said, and you know, he turned out to be a nice guy. He said, "Are you sure you're not coming back?" I said, "I'm sure." He said, I can't not write you a ticket, but uh, he wrote me a ticket like I was only doing five miles over the speed limit. He cut me a big break. But as he was driving by, you know, uh, when I left, he says, uh, you make sure you uh, pay that ticket there now because, you know, we are hanging people down here. I'm like, yeah, don't I know? So (laughs) (laughs) I said, right, well, believe me, that ticket was paid before I got home. But um, anyway, by the time I got home, I mean, I live in Queens, so uh, so prosecutor's office, it's right there. You know, there's Queens District Attorney's office. You know, I had um, I applied for a job there. You know, and uh, interesting enough, the John Santucci was the district attorney at the time. Um, my mom at the time was the head of. Um, um, uh, nursing at Jamaica Hospital at the time, which was right there in Queens County as well, not too far from, um, not too far from where we were living in Laurelton, but also not too far from the courthouse. More importantly, John Santucci had, <laughs> you know, sometimes it helps to know people a little bit and have a good mom. John Santucci had a brother who is a surgeon uh, who worked at Jamaica Hospital and who loved my mother. Okay, so um, when I told my mom that I was applying for a job at the Queen's Day's office, of course, she says, I know, I know his brother. Let me talk to him. And next thing you know, I'm getting a call to come to, you know, I got an interview and uh, I, I, I went down there and I, I, I got I got the job, you know. So it was really the only job you applied for or were you That's applying it. for other things? No, that, that was it. That was it. That was the first job I, I got back. It's the first job I applied for. And, you know, uh, I mean, I would, have applied, I would have applied to the other offices. You know, it was simply an, uh, an issue of just proximity and just, you know, ease. You know, I'm right here. If I get into this one, it's, you know, it's like 20 minutes from my house, you know. So this was, this was, this, this, this was easy. And I was, and I was aware of the office just generally, uh, you know, in terms of uh, what, what they were doing. But, um, 
you know, the you know, prosecutor's office and 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 uh, I'm trying to remember what case was going on at that 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 time. There was maybe it'll come back to me. There was there was something that was going on that they were they were in the paper and they were getting some notoriety. And I remember reading the paper and yeah, the 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 ADA that was trying the case um, was uh, you know was in the paper. You know, and this you know, and he seemed to be doing. The right thing, you know, tries trying to get justice achieved for you know a a, a uh, an individual that had been uh, that had been killed and uh, and um, so it was it was you know that 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 affected me at the time. Some crossover appeal, I guess, to to wanting to be in the entertainment industry. The fact that you saw that that people who were in public service, which you obviously had a passion for, also could have some recognition too. Oh, easy, easy, easy. But uh, <clears throat> but what what started to happen is that uh, getting into the prosecutor's office was was a, the, I, I knew that most people just can't walk into CBS and get a job in their corporate law office, you know, uh, just like that, and uh, it it just doesn't happen because there must probably be a million people applying for that. So even if you were going to put something in for that, you know, at at best, you might have become like an associate or something, you know, or 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 you may never have gotten gotten a job. So I said, let's 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 do something that's uh, uh, a little bit more uh, rational. And also, I started to think about becoming a litigator as opposed to you know a corporate law individual. And I knew that <clears throat> I knew that if nothing else, you know, I wanted to be in a courtroom and and, and in a courtroom setting and. Um, I know that there were so many lawyers that I uh, that I was aware of who uh, you know who passed the bar and so on, and uh, and some of them who just didn't pass the bar, and and some of them who didn't care if they passed the bar or not because they never were ever going to appear in the courtroom in front of the bar for. They wanted to be, you know, real estate brokers. They wanted to, you know, be sports managers. They just wanted the law degree. So, so I recognized that that was going on. But I, 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 I became influenced uh, uh, and attracted to the concept of being in front of people and and speaking to people and trying to convince them, you know, of a particular a particular side. Did you did you feel when you got that job? Did you sort of feel like you had made it? Yeah. That was a big deal, um, uh, but it was it was it was it was slightly delayed for the following reason. When I say delayed, uh, when you get uh, um, when you get hired by your average prosecutor's office, um, you probably are hired before you've passed the bar. Okay, so you're not technically an assistant DA until you do pass the bar. You're you're uh, it has a weird name. Uh, you might be a criminal law associate or CLs, yeah, CLA or something like that. So, um, okay. Corporate side, it's gotcha. law, law the corporate clerk. side. So, what happened with me is that while I was in law school, like my, well, you guys don't know, but my handwriting I'm actually still just CLA. sucks. I never. Okay. Pa- so, never while I was in law school, <laughs> every exam that I have, I typed it. I've always typed all my exams. You know. Yeah, exactly. Bring a, bring a typewriter. Into I used the, to have a typewriter and I into just, the you know, into write. the exam. Well, I mean, I you know I could take notes. Well, no, I take the exam. Every, the, with, the, no, the, the exam. Thing, every like <laughs> the exam I did with and, and it was an Olivetti and it didn't go <laughs> like that. It it had the little ball. Okay, I remember mm-hmm. it very well. I think I still have it at home. So I typed all my exams, and um, but here here was a problem. Once the bar exam came up, I asked, you know, for permission to be able to type it. And they said, you can't type it. That's only for people who are handicapped. 
I said, I said, that's insane. I said, because you would not be able to read my writing. I said, you know, I would, I'm just going to spend more time trying to make sure I write legibly than, than, than the time the exam, you know, would allow for. I said, that, so that's not, that's not, that's not. He said, well, that's, that's the deal. So I took the bar exam, <laughs> failed. And that was, that was pretty, pretty uh, messed up. Because remember, I started at, I started um, you, at the DA's office, you come in with classes. Okay, so you come in with classes. Some people pass. You know, most people pass the bar, and then they move on. They become ADAs. You're still a CLA, and you stay in a particular division that you can stay in until you do pass, but other people continue on. Took it again. They wouldn't let me um, uh, type it. Failed it. So now I was really getting upset because, uh, you know, after going through law school, you're saying to yourself, why? You know, when is my life going to kick in? Because uh, this is, you know, it can be uh, pretty distressing. And for, for some people, it can really knock them, knock them off balance. So anyway, what I did is that I went back to the, uh, the bar examiners and I told them, um, well, actually, someone um, wrote a letter and uh, somehow I, was, I had a motor nerve neuron disorder that prevented me from writing over extended periods of time. And somehow that information got to the board of uh, examiners, okay? And by within an hour, I'm faxed a, a letter to type the exam. You can type it, Mr. Holder. Uh, I think, was it an eight-hour exam or whatever? I finished it like in three hours. You know, I was done, you know, and of course passed at that time. And uh, <clears throat> so from the perspective of, a, you know, an attorney now, a prosecuting attorney, now I'm playing catch-up to people who are like a year and a half, you know, ahead of me, you know, whatever time period it takes for two bar exams, ahead of me, you know, in the office. But the good thing about that is that um, I think, and that's, and that's why I think I wanted a, uh, an office that was, um, that was a litigation office because I, 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 I always believed that I had the aptitude to do that and to do it pretty, pretty well. So you may move through that office um, just generally in terms of classes moving to here, moving to there, you know, this, t- this time in this bureau, this time. That's what only happens. Eventually, that breaks apart, and you move through based on ability, okay? And that happened once I got to the three-year spot in the office, quite different than what happens now. And within my three years in the office, then I was prosecuting, you know, um, difficult felony cases because it turned out that um, my ability to uh, try a case was actually pretty good. And I caught up to my classmates and passed them uh, uh, in terms of the uh, uh, where I was in the office. Uh, and at that time, the murderer rate was so bad in Queens County that the Homicide Bureau uh, could not handle all of the homicides that 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 you know that they had assigned to them, so they would pass those cases on to what was called a mop, m o uh, major fi- a mop m o p p major offense prosecution program that bureau. So I was I happened to be in that that bureau. So consequently, we got a lot of homicide cases sent our way simply because of the fact that um, the homicide uh, ADAs couldn't handle their, their, their caseload. Those, 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 those were prosecuted by, by myself and successfully, and, and I did very well. And uh, um, I was in that office 20 years. I'd say by my fifth year in the office, I then became the deputy bureau chief of the narcotic uh, 
Investigations Bureau. Five years in, I didn't. I, I had no idea. Five wow. years in the office, and 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 it was weird. I got a call by Mr. Santucci. Uh, I remember I was used to I was used to watching. Um, uh, there was a uh, five o'clock news in the morning every 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 morning. It would come on. Uh, I, actually, the, the the news would come on at six o'clock and at seven o'clock. But it was on Channel Five, and I forgot the. Uh, uh, she might have been Kaidi Tong. It was a reporter, and I used to just when I'm in bed, you know, I just hear the news. And I remember one day hearing my name on the news, and I, I said to my wife, "Did I just hear my name on the <laughs> on the news? Uh, how you know? And you know how." If you miss a broadcast, you wait another half hour and it comes comes again. You didn't have TiVo? No. <laughs> I thought you just rewind it. <laughs> are you talking about you wait it's for very, something? Very weird. You can't no. wait for things. <laughs> no. This was, you know, you're talking, uh, you know, uh, early 90s, okay? And how that happened, just to digress, is that Mr. Santucci called me up to his office and he said, so Ken, how's, how are things going? You know, five years into the office, you know, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. He said, um, do you have a house yet? Did you buy a house? That's what he asked me. I said, did I buy a house? I, I said, can I speak freely, uh, Mr. Mr. DA? He said, sure. I said, I can't buy a house on what you pay me. <laughs> That's impossible. <laughs> you know? So he said, all right, not a problem. Two months later, there was the, um, um, uh, the, the office Christmas party, which they have every, 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 you know, every, every Christmas. And... Uh, the DA announced that there's going to be some some changes, you know, uh, coming up the uh, uh, by the next next day, and it's from this Kaidi Tong person on TV. I think I'm almost sure it's her who said <laughs> that uh, Kenneth Holder from the Queen's A's office was uh, promoted to uh, deputy bureau chief. And you didn't you didn't this wasn't something on your radar. You like didn't think no. that you were up for this position, or I wasn't thought you were all, I thought you, you were, were all going to get houses. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like Oprah. That would have been nice. And Santucci at the Christmas party would be like, you get a house. That would have been you nice. You get a house. He just, I think he just had a different opinion of what we do with the money or what he was paying us. But it was this young lady who was telling me, you know, <laughs> that I found out that I got promoted from. And that was a shock. And um, so, and uh, my boss, the person who was the bureau chief, you know, I never met him. He was in the office, but it's not someone I used to hang out with. And he says, "Oh my God, you're 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 now working for me." And uh, um, I I didn't even know that you could be working for me. I didn't even have a say in this. And <laughs> how anyway, old how old were you at this point? Um, so I graduated in in uh, 80, 84, 84. I was 20, 26, 26, 27. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's, and, that's unheard of now. Oh, it's, it's not even possible. And you had so, and this meant that you had a big team working under you, right? Yeah. What People it meant who was I that I were older than a lot of them who were probably older and had been there longer than exactly. you had, right? And and it, what it meant was that I had uh, I was I now became responsible for um, um, the wiretaps that were um, in Queens County that were being uh, uh, placed all over the place, and um, and then uh, I I was sharing responsibility for the prosecution of the street level drug cases, and within. Two years of that, um, another uh, uh, message from the TV that morning, uh, uh, two years later, this young lady again says in a, in a late night. Uh, um, the same, this is the same newscaster? Same newscaster. <laughs> late, late night changes, 
by by uh, Mr. Sanchichi, who has decided to resign. So what happened is that he resigned at that time. But before he resigned, he he put a lot of he made a lot of changes. And he says part and parcel of those changes. Kenneth Holder is now the uh, bureau chief of narcotic narcotics trials. So I found out basically from her that that bureau that I had been deputy bureau chief of under the new district attorney now was being split in two, whereby I was going to be chief of my own division and uh, that being and trials. Was this was this really like what you wanted to be doing? Were you sort of did you were you excited about rising the ranks? Were I was you, definitely excited yeah. about rising the ranks, you know, and 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 doing doing uh, uh, having the trial division and not the uh, not the uh, uh, the uh, the wiretap division was even more exciting because the trial division uh, that was a time I told you in Queens County, Queens County, um, just like the rest of the well, at least the rest of New York was just. Are being ravished by a, a crack epidemic and a crime level of crime that was just unheard of. What, what do you what do you attribute the success to? Do you is, can you sort of point to any? Well, you, it sounds, you like, it out, sounds out, like it's due to tongue. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like Kaidi Tong is responsible. For... I, I attribute it to her because she was like my good good luck charm. Yeah. No, you know what, what happened is that um, aside aside from try, trying cases uh, and trying them uh, uh, pretty well, um, uh, I also. Um, that bureau was not organized when I when I got there. When I say organized, they were still putting things on card catalogs. They had card files for 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 what they did. Uh, I've I've been pretty much involved in computers even back back then. Probably from the fact that I was you know doing the typewriter stuff. So I you know anything that was a keyboard uh, generated, I I stayed I stayed pretty you know pr- pretty up on. And eventually, I what I did is that I redesigned that entire bureau. I computerized the whole bureau. I I put a database uh, relation relational databases in place so that uh, of the thousands of cases they. they they had they just push a button they know you know who has what case when what what it's on for and then then that showed a level of organization from the office standpoint that they would have liked the other you know management staff to to emulate that's basically what happened there and and moving into the narcotic side with the number of narcotic cases that they were which was in the thousands that was a that was a heavy nut uh, to to actually uh, have to take care of and then organize that and they figured they, I'm sure someone figured out that if he did that with the, with with that whole bureau, then he can just take take one on his own and do the and, same thing. And at any point during this time, are you now starting to think maybe it'd be cool to be a judge? Never. Still no. <clears throat> Never. Still, still not even not even not even in my mind. And uh, with with in this particular position, it was it was huge because I I I had the shared responsibility of prosecuting um, not only every... Uh, well, I mean, I was responsible for prosecuting at the street level all drug cases in Queens County, um, but I also had the shared prosecution of prosecuting the the drug mules that were coming in from Kennedy, you know, and uh, LaGuardia Airport. I shared that with the feds. You know, the, the feds typically would, uh, I think at that time, they would decline to prosecute anything uh, under... 20 kilos uh they wanted the nice you know cases the, the the drugs in the dog you know or you know uh so little other things like that they would decline because they declined it someone had to do that the bureau ended up taking taking that on as a consequence um that whole drug mule um um error if you will uh um you know, I was in, I was, I was in, I was in the middle of that because all of the cases that I, I had were were subject to at that time the Rockefeller drug laws. When is this? This is the nineties. This is the nineties. This is the nineties from like nineteen ninety five, to to um, you know, on up. 
you know, uh, and the Rockefeller drug laws were, were, you know, as you know, quite devastating in terms of the, uh, the penalties that individuals were looking at if they were caught uh, with, uh, with, well, with what people believe were small amounts of drugs. But um, I, I think, uh, well, you know, when those laws were designed by Nelson Rockefeller, they were designed to actually be, you know, to beat people over the head. They were, they were pretty harsh. But I think what what they didn't take into consideration in an office that, that we had is that we also had a plea policy. So individuals who came in, you know, who probably had, you know, a pound or a kilo of, 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 of drugs wasn't necessarily going to get 25 to life. They may be offered, you know, two to six, three to nine years in jail, something like that. But if they reject it, now the case has got to go, you know, go to trial. You force your hand. And once, if they were convicted, I mean, the, the drugs are in, either in their belly, you know, or, or in some, their suitcase they're carrying. Uh, they weren't difficult cases to try. Once they're convicted, now that the, the judges have are under a mandatory sentencing scheme. So, you know, people that, you know, uh, there was no, there was no, um, you know, there was no discretion. But unfortunately, a lot of young ladies got caught up doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, my man asked me to do this or, you know, they have kids at home and, Someone has their kids hostage and told them to do. There were a lot of stories, you know. So uh, a lot of people got, you know, concerned about that. And uh, the drug mule, uh, uh, that feature, I think, had a lot to do with, you know, driving out the uh, the, the move, driving the movement to, to to reduce the Rockefeller drug laws. Did you did you ever struggle with the role that you had, you know, putting putting sort of these sometimes. <clears throat> you know, not necessarily low level, but putting drug offenders behind bars? Or was there ever sort of, did you ever have any moral issues with kind of the work that you were doing? No, not at the time, uh, because at the time uh, I was I was concentrating on the, the violence. You know, uh, you know um, up into 98, 99, 2000, you know, what used to happen, you know, in some areas of Queens, you know, where they had phone booths still, those phone booths were uh, offices for drug dealers. So it was not unusual to see, um, you know, five or six people get sprayed with bullets at a corner because, you know, someone put their hand in the phone booth, you know, and, and they did not know in the coin box. They did not know that that's almost a drug dealer's office or a rival drug dealer is trying to, you know, move people off of, off of, off of that spot. So when I'm talking about a murder rate that was through the roof, you know, uh, there wasn't time to be uh, polite, you know, or to uh, be concerned about, oh, you know, you have you know have a drug habit. You know there was uh, you know when we were in homicide, there were there were times we'd you know get a call to go to a house. I remember going to a house in uh, in uh, right across from uh, Reverend Flake's church. You know, and uh, uh, they said there was a guy in the house that was you know being that was had been kidnapped. You know, I went there with the police. They knocked the door down, and there was a guy that was duct taped. You know, up he had the he had he was the mess beat out of him. But more importantly than him just being, his mouth was duct tape, his hands duct tape, he's tied to a chair. But they had um, candles that were burning behind him that were designed to to burn burn to a certain to a certain level and then set on fire. You know, a whole bunch of uh, of, of newspaper. So that you know. He, you know that was an elaborate setup for someone to just get killed. You know that that we got on, and and it's because this guy had got in in, in on someone else's uh, territory. So so at that time, and you know, and, and when I say, as a prosecutor, and as a as a litigator, um, and having a bureau with a large number of assistants who were in court. All the time, I think we got the largest number of people who who tried cases 
over and over again. So their child skills were getting very, you know, very good, uh, and 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 they needed that. You know, uh, on the on the defense side, it was it was it was it was a time of uh, people were making a lot of money at at, at that time because. Um, uh, these drug dealers, you know, th- there would be nothing to bring suitcases, ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars, giving it to the defense attorney in the parking lot, exchanging money like that. There's a lot of money that 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 was given. That you know, there was no nobody, no one, no one filed taxes for it or anything like that. It's just it was just it was just an underground, you know, uh, society of, of 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 money going back and forth. So you get lawyers that you know push the envelope in terms of trying trying to defend you know killers and so on that and things like that. And you have prosecutors who were now trained very well to you know to to fight that. You know, eventually that all came full circle when um, I'd say in about 2000 and God, it'd be about 2005, 2004. We started to see a decline, you know, in the number of, uh, in the amount of violence, you know, in, in our drug cases. And we started to realize that a lot of the people who were coming in had, were like addicts and, and, and there were, and, and with no violence and no prior history of violence. And so at, and that the problem is that the Rockefeller drug laws were still in place at that time. So people were still moving to get rid of that. What What did your wife and your family think about this line of work and, and the hours that you were working and the well, types of the types of cases you were working on? Well, I mean, obviously the wife wasn't uh, she was uh, there was always a concern for safety. You know, there was it was all that, and and more moreover, because I lived, you know, I lived I lived in 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 the uh, the Laurelton community at that time. The area I live in of Queens, Laurelton, St Albans, Cambria Heights, is the uh, those areas are the areas where uh, there's the largest percentage of middle to uh, high income uh, blacks, the largest percentage in the entire country. Okay, yet. We were still finding that a lot of um, um, dealers were still coming from this very neighborhood, and we couldn't understand. Well, these people are making money here. There's two parent households, beautiful lawns, you know, nice homes. You know, what is going on here? And then we realized, uh, you know, unfortunately, that because people were actually going to uh, going to work, all right, and and working hard to to live like like they've been able to provide for their kids, their kids were out on the streets, you know, getting dragged in, you know, by, you know, criminals, you know, to do other nefarious things, you know, it's almost like they didn't have enough to do. And uh, so it, it was strange. So as a con- so consequently, I'm living in the same neighborhood where a lot of the people I prosecute also lived. Exactly. I recall one time there was a time when, uh, you know, I was... I was living in my parents' house because you know, they have a large two-family house. We had the apartment on the top floor, and my parents were on the the, the, the first floor. And a huge bang came through my window. Um, I don't know what what is. It knocked out all the lights, and um, so we all dropped dropped down to the ground. And um, we tried to search around for what was going on. I heard some people yelling outside, you know, "You set bail on my man! You set bail on my man!" I didn't set bail. <laughs> Not the judge, you know, but whatever. whatever. Um, but when when we when we when we when we saw the item, we were able to turn the lights on. You know, it was a huge brick. You know, and it and it was it was it was wrapped up to look like, and it said "bomb" on it. You know, and they were like, next time it'll be the real thing. You know, 
So you know that, and at that time, I think uh, our first child had been you know born not too not too long you know uh, after after that. So um, so that be, that that became a concern. What I started to realize is that you know um, that was almost a consequence of the job. Sometimes you know uh, if you live in the same community of the people that sometimes you either defend or you prosecute. And you've lived in that area for a while. In arraignments, you're 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 bound to run into someone in court, or you know that. Oh, I know him. I think I went to high school with him. Or, you know, whatever. Or just the people in the neighborhood see you in court, and they happen to know where you live. Sometimes people's families come to watch things in courtroom. It becomes a very dangerous thing, you know. But I started to realize that a lot of people, you know, give a lot of mouth, and that's about it. You know, there there was there 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 are certain groups, there are certain individuals that when they do threaten you, you, you need to be a little bit more concerned. You know, when you're doing some other cases, uh, you need to take that a little bit more seriously. And then when that when that happens, you know, there are detectives that you know would uh, you know you know stay near you, um, uh, uh, drop you to work, drop you home, you know, just check on you. So there's another level of of uh, security that you have to do. But, you know, listen, at any time, you know, anyone could be popped off. You know, there's, there's, there's no doubt about it, you know. And, uh, you know, you're responsible for making some, some, some serious decisions that affect people's lives. And until someone gets it through their head that even if this guy's not here, someone else is going to do the same thing, I think that's the only thing that, you know, starts, starts to uh, water down, you know, any, any, any effort like that. But uh, it, it's not – it's uh, being a prosecutor is a dangerous, dangerous job. If you're out there, you know, at, at the time, top of the food chain, you know, and you're in public and you're handling, you know, and you're handling cases where, where people are, you know, just don't want to go, you know, go down. Yeah, it's pretty bad. So, so with the individuals who did, who were addicts, what I was able to do was the balance between the Rockefeller drug laws, because I always felt that um, crime is cyclical. I always felt that, uh, I know that this law is pretty tough, but if the office itself was not utilizing um, that law the way it's written, i.e., it's we don't have to use it. We can offer, we can charge someone lower, you know, and expose them to a lower, you know, lo- lower sentences. Um, just in the possibility that if things got crazy again, you still have that law in place to, you know, you know, you look at what's going on now, you know, now the drugs are going crazy. Uh, but now there's pres- prescription drugs, you know, uh, now it's taking on a different, different bend. And I think the movement now is towards, you know, uh, uh, understand, recognizing a, uh, 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 a, um, a substance abuse uh, issue as opposed to, especially for people who are not selling, as opposed to, a, you know, a, a, a selling, you know, a selling drug dealer issue. So it's changed. So what I did in, um, in, in two, 2000, 2004 or so, I managed to find a grant. Uh, that the federal government was um, um, had had out, and it was it was to, it was to design a drug court. Okay, and Queens had never had a drug court, so uh, I looked at this and I contacted uh, some friends and uh, I, I spoke to someone down at the uh, uh, office of court administration because they were monitoring these grants at the time, and I decided that I'm, I'm going to write, I'm going to apply for the grant and write it. I write it and, and apply for it. And I, I did that with, with their assistance, and I got the grant. And it was for $5 million that I got for Queens County, a $5 million grant in addition to, a, um, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to set up the court and a $2 million uh, grant uh, for the uh, implementation of it. And what we did is that we took um, individuals uh, from um, police, parole, um, uh, 
the 18B uh, uh, sec- section, private bar, legal aid. Uh, there was no QLA at, you know, at that time. Uh, Department of Corrections and the treatment community. And we, we, we formed, a, uh, we formed a, a think tank. And uh, the money that, we, that, that, that I got paid for us to fly all around the country to visit other drug courts that were in existence. You know, and we flew from, uh, we went from Miami all the way to Seattle, uh, Kansas. We were all over, the, all over the country. And we learned about, you know, the different drug courts. And the, the drug court theory was, uh, um, was, was, was simply this. Individuals who were nonviolent, uh, who are charged with serious drug, drug cases, can get into this program, but they have to participate in a, for some of them, a 18 to 24-month in-house residential program, or if they were not uh, that bad, it would be a 9 to 18-month outpatient program. They would be required to successfully complete it, and if they, if they successfully completed it, their case was dismissed. And the, the interesting thing about the drug court, where it differed from everything else, is that the drug court allowed for what we call um, uh, failure. So we recognize that uh, people who have substance abuses just don't get it fixed just because you tell them to the first time, that they can uh, relapse, they can, you know. And so there was a set of what we call graduated sanctions in place for failure. Was this something you saw from in other drug courts around the, the exactly, country? Exactly, exactly. This was this was this was this was in place all around the other country, and we realized that that is the only way to actually have a successful uh, uh, court of that of that of that making. Because if you just said what typically used to happen is that people would be offered probation, you know, I mean, be offered jail. The jail would be deferred. They let them participate in the program, and it was not an organized program. If they failed or if they got a, you know, the program always tells us how they're doing. This person didn't show up or this person, you know, relapsed. Immediately, that person was, uh, was written off as a failure and the alternative jail sentence was imposed. And that was happening almost all the time. Exactly. So you ended up putting more, even though you're trying to help people, you ended up people putting more people in jail, you know, that you're trying to help than, 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 than you otherwise would have. It was a completely flawed system. So having the system where you, where you can tolerate failure but tolerated tolerate at a declining level made, made more sense. We had a judge that we assigned, you know, that was dedicated to that court uh, specifically. We had court officers who were dedicated to that court because, because this was a court that would, would, would uh, applaud success. So you're talking about court officers that were in a courtroom when people do well, they clap for them. Now, you're not going to see that in every court, and neither are you going to have court officers that are even going to want to do that. So you had to get court officers who were, you know, who, who flew around the country with us, who saw that, and you have, to change the, you have to change the thinking of these individuals that this is a doable scenario. You had to get judges that you had to, you know, re- have them recognize that, that these things exist and that the things are changing. I remember meeting with the judges on the, on the eighth floor. And, and explaining to them what a drug court is because we're just going to Philadelphia and, and just uh, seeing how, how well one, one is run. We came back to explain to them. They laughed at it. And I said, you know what? I said, you guys are crazy. I said, because this is where the future is going. You're not going to be able to jail everyone. You know, it's just not possible. And if you don't open your minds to, and it started with acupuncture first and other, you know, other things to try to, you know, alleviate uh, uh, substance abuse. But if you don't have these alternative sentences in place, the whole place is going to collapse. So ultimately, when we came back here, we put in place 
the Queen's uh, Drug Court. And by the time I left in 2005, I got elected to, uh, to uh, civil court. That, was, that court was the second most successful court in the entire country. Okay, we had we had taken in over two thousand uh, uh, um, in uh, clients uh, uh, they, whose cases were uh, successfully disposed of. the The rate of recidivism of those individuals was the lowest lowest in the country, and it got so it it got to the point where the community was actually got upset with us because what was happening is that part and parcel of us uh, helping these people with their substance abuse, we also gave them job training, we found them housing. We found them jobs, okay? So the community was like, we're trying to do that for my kids just normally, but you're telling me my kid has to be arrested in order to get into this program. And and, and my answer was, listen, this is the criminal justice system. We don't go out and, and seek, you know, and pull our clients in. You know, we don't pull clients in. We get them as a consequence of a crime that they committed. And then, and that, that's how they end up there. So it was a really weird thing to have to, you know, I understood, you know, uh, that it was difficult just on their own to get these things. And yet here, here people who are charged with crimes, we're, we're, doing, we're doing it. People talk a lot about treating the problem, right? But it sounds like what you're talking about is, is understanding the problem. Because there can be a difference between treating the problem and understanding the root causes of the problem. And unless you do that, unless you take the time to understand it, it's impossible to really treat it. Right, you have to recognize what the root cause of it is, you know, and and you have to you, th- then you have to be able to have the you know the ability to put those things in place. That money put that in place because we now put in place actual testing. You know, people come into the courthouse before they come to the courtroom. We had a, a system whereby their urine was tested over in Borough Hall. You know, we had a whole system of individuals, you know, uh, to do urinalysis, and and you know, it's one stop sh- one stop shopping. And and it the the court is still in place, still in place now, right now. Yeah. And, when I, when I well. worked there, we had the misdemeanor assistants doing the urine testing. Yeah, yeah. I would actually test the urine <laughs> myself. That's, that's what they had us doing. All right, Judge. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I, I, I just wonder um, if you have any advice for you know a law student or someone early on in their career who may have aspirations to be on the bench one day. Um, what what sort of thoughts you would have? Well, okay. Just so, just so people know that there's, there's only two ways you can get on the bench, um, at least here in New York. One, the appointed way, right? Um, you can get appointed to the bench uh, in, in, two, in, in, in two ways. One, by the mayor. And if you get appointed by the mayor, you get appointed to uh, either lower criminal court or lower, to, uh, uh, lower civil court. Uh, when you're appointed by the mayor, you're appointed for certain terms, you know, a number of terms. It could be from one year to 10 years, all right, depending on, you know, when you, uh, depending on what they want to give you at the time you, time of appointment. Most people, uh, in order to become a judge, you have to be, uh, you have to be an attorney in good standing for a minimum of 10 years. Um, and then you can apply for these mayoral judgeships. Another way is through the uh, Court of Claims. The Court of Claims is another appointed uh, 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 judgeship scenario, but that is, uh, an appointment not by the mayor, but by the governor, okay? And uh, those, those, uh, uh, those court of claims judges are Supreme Court judges. They're not lower court judges. So they're assigned immediately to the, to the Supreme Court, and their terms are for, I believe, at least 10, uh, are for 10 years, uh, right, up, right off the bat. Um, uh, and the only other, the third way is by being elected. 
getting elected um, uh, to to the bench is a is a is a is a, um, a pretty involved process and can differ. Um, Based on based on where you are, uh, where you live. In other words, Nassau County, you know, up in Westchester or New York City, uh, there may be different um, uh, uh, political considerations that you have to look into uh, when you're when you're attempting to get on the bench the the elected way. Because a lot of times, some of the the uh, the predominant uh, political organization in that in that in that particular area, they may have uh, they may have a lot of say as to you know who. Get on gets on the ballot, you know, and 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 as a consequence, if that's a predominant uh, um, uh, uh, um, political party in that area, that may have a lot to do with whether or not that person will win the race or not. But that requires the raising of money, the establishment of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of a of a of, of committees, and so on. It can be it can be it can be pretty involved. It sounds like across the board, it's it, it's a it's a political position on some level across the board, right? You have to make sure that you have good relationships and. And a lot of a lot of a lot of who you are, and you know, in other words, you don't have to you don't have to decide, you know, when you graduate from law school that you want to be a judge. But I think that you need to comport yourself in a manner that will not prevent you from get becoming a judge. You know, uh, so uh, uh, what what I do realize is that once you once you attempt to become a judge, all of a sudden there's an, you become an open book. You know, and people will start to look back. You know, at at you know at who you are. They try to find out people that you may know or that know you or know things about you, you know, that, that might, that might affect whether or not they might want to stand behind you, you know, uh, as you know, for the, uh, for individuals who are, uh, who, who, who are getting mayoral appointments, I think it was in last week in the, in the, the front of the law journal, the people who are up for consideration, they, they post a public notice for anyone who has any information relating to these people, you know, to cut, to bring it forward. There's a public hearing on them. So your life becomes an open book. And because of social media, it's completely changed now because you may you may be your worst enemy I'm definitely my own worst enemy <laughs> you may be your worst I'm enemy <laughs> is there is there a bar in the number of funnel photos on Facebook <laughs> you can have before judgeship because I'm coming up in my 10 years but I believe I have like six or seven funnel photos if you had if you had the big delete button uh, that actually worked and deleted you know the cash and everything else uh, you might be okay but uh, you know I mean and, and I think that's what people need to need to need to look at I, I mean I tell my kids from now that you know know, listen, you know, uh, uh, you, they're not trying to be judged or anything like that. They're not in that field. But I tell them that, you know, when you go for certain jobs, you know, next thing you know, someone says, open up your Instagram page, you know, and, and th- that may say who you really are. Um, the same thing for, for these. And, and, and these, these judgeships are, are looked upon, you know, as, as, as uh, you know, the cream de la cream. So, well, you could tweet whatever you want to become president, <laughs> so it's fine. No comment on that one. <laughs> no comment on that one. But, but, but uh, you know, as I said, I, I would say I people, more, need, to, people need to be sure you, that they want to do something like that and, I was a, I was and, and, and just be careful uh, of, the, of the, the paper trail or the, the digital trail that they're leaving for themselves. That might be their biggest impediment. How did that kind of visual storytelling that you were that you were undertaking when you were in college and after college – have an impact on your ability to tell stories in a courtroom. I was using PowerPoint probably a lot sooner than other people were doing. You know, uh, I was I was making PowerPoint presentations for my summations.
uh, and letting that just run and just uh, I realized the power of the, the of the visual art seemed to carry carry a lot of a lot of weight. It was sure. impressive and it also blew away blew away the other people. But it was just something that just always just for me just uh, just keeps the mind you know pretty active you know and uh, and and, and th- that are, that artistic 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 side of you uh, is always playable in the courtroom because don't forget it's it's showtime at the Apollo for the yeah. most part. <laughs> I mean you know you can't forget that. You know, it, you're all putting on a show, and uh, uh, you know the tools that you bring to that are going to play a big, big role in how, how you do, how you end up doing. You know. All right, Judge. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. This was uh, this was this was fun. This was a lot more fun than I thought it would be. Yeah. <laughs> you, you thought it was going to be terrible, really boring. <laughs> this all was right. fun. I appreciate Thanks it, so gentlemen. Much. Thanks a lot. 